This week's episode is a recording of a conversation produced by Tiffany Earle and Anelody Milne, the founders of Lemmy. We've done our best to enhance the audio of the 20-year-old conference call. While the sound may not be the best, the content is a classic. Okay, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about our topic today. As Anelody and I discuss probably the top two most important things that we hope to see happen with our Lemmy teachers and with those who participate in our conference calls and come to our seminars, we realize that there are probably two single most important things that we watch happen with our teachers. One of them is that our teachers who have grown up usually on the conveyor belt model, which uses the method of manipulation and coercion to educate <clears throat> its pupils, and they've grown up on that model, and to switch over to the leadership model, which teaches through freedom, probably one of the, the biggest things that occurs is that our teachers get practice teaching through freedom. And that's a really, really, really big deal. And they learn how to, and, and they feel safe doing it, and they become really successful at it. And our teachers become probably some of the very, very best leadership education teachers. I know that we get feedback all the time from counselors at Youth for America at Georgia College or just at functions where lots of students come in and a good portion of them are in the Lemmy classes. And they see a market difference. They see a huge difference in the students who've been in classes where they are learning in the scholar projects where their teachers are teaching through freedom. They give them the opportunity to grow incredibly or even they, they give them a gift. They give them the gift that if they want to fail, they can fail. And even outsiders can see a difference in these students that there's something about them. They have certain knowledge. They can converse in various fields. And, of course, we know that why, as they study Shakespeare, their, their ability to converse on many subjects grows. And as they study the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and our founding, it gives them a base structure. But that's probably... One of the most important things that happens and that we try and teach are the principles surrounding absolutely incredible um, mentors and teachers, how to be the best kind of teacher you can be. The second thing that is probably the, one of the most important things that we teach is um, the ability to see forms <clears throat> and um, to see the behind-the-scene beliefs that, and that create the forms, and then um, encouraging our teachers to support the right forms. And today's call is the a discussion of forms. I'm hoping to be able to do two things today, well, three things today on the call. One is to help you to see forms more clearly, to know what forms are, to be able to see them in your daily life, when you read classics, just to see them, to actually train your mind to see them better. And, and I have I have teachers who are on the call with us today who have been teaching with us and working with us for two or three or even four years, and always them and 
just like me, we can always enhance our ability to understand forms. This is probably one of those topics that we can never tire of gaining one more understanding and breadth on it and depth. The next thing I hope that you can start seeing on a better level is the the behind-the-scenes beliefs that help to promote and build those forms. And you'll understand that more in a few minutes. And then, of course, enhance your ability to support the right forms. Today, I'm going to read to you from one of the chapters in the mentor book that Oliver and I just finished writing that we're really excited about, and now it's a matter of getting it edited and finding the right publisher. And I also have Tatiana on the line. She's going to participate in a section of this. And Tatiana, feel free when I'm reading if you want to interrupt me and ask questions. That won't bother me at all. I'll be interviewing Tatiana in part of the call later, and then I have some activities for you. As far as what you'll need to get the most out of this call, I hope you have paper and pencil. If not, I'll be getting a whole bunch of emails at the end asking me questions. So I hope you have, I hope you have paper and pencil. Okay, I'm going to read to you from the mentor book that Oliver DeMille and I are writing. Chapter 6, Reasons. There are at least three reasons each of us need a liberal arts mentor. Now I'm going to pause right here. This not only has to do with why each of us on this call needs a liberal arts mentor, but as LEMI teachers, when you're working with students in scholar phase, whether you are teaching a practice scholar project, an apprentice scholar project, whether you are working with students who are in self-directed, either way, they get their formal liberal arts mentor when they get into mentored scholar phase, and they submit to a formal liberal arts mentor who's going to fill in the gaps for them. But you are their first exposure on a scholarly level to the liberal arts, and you actually lay the foundation for what I'm going to be talking about. That's why it is so important for you to master forms, because you will be laying the foundation to everything that I'm going to be saying. So not only do you have to think of this in terms of yourself and your ability to think like this, but you need to think of this in terms of how am I showing the students how am I teaching my students how to see this and how to feel this and how to think like this so keep that in mind as I continue to read to you there are at least three reasons each of us need a liberal arts mentor first liberal arts mentors teach forms it's exactly what you're doing in your classroom second they teach learning skills Finally, liberal arts mentors mentor you through the classics. All three help you accomplish your mission. Liberal arts mentors take mentees through classics in several disciplines, which teach forms. Many wonder what is meant by the word form. Put simply, form thinking is the opposite of rote thinking. I'll start by asking a few questions. Looking back at your education, would you say you were educated more by rote or by inspiration? That's a hard question. The truth is, almost everything you really learned was because of inspiration, but the system may have pushed you to study in rote ways. Another way to ask the very same question is, 
In your schooling experience, how many original works did you read by Virgil, Cicero, Newton, Plato, Kant, Rousseau, Washington, Lincoln, Hegel, and others like them? If you've read less than half of these and other classic contributors to human thought, you have your answer. Your education was mostly rote. How can people who were educated to the test, especially to multiple choice tests, learn to think in terms of anything but rote? The alternative is to learn to think in forms. This naturally occurs when people read the classics, a lot of the classics, for the very reading is a comparison of forms. What, you say? But you've been reading them and didn't realize it? It's so simple that you may not have known it was happening. When you read the great thinkers, the very reading of the classics trains your mind to think structurally. At first, those trained in rote see very little of the forms. But those who keep reading start comparing ideas, and their minds start thinking in forms. When a mentor or a class challenges your thinking about a classic that you've read, your forms thinking grows even more. Today, people talk about the forms our country is built on, our families, our businesses, our government, our relationships. People not only talk about forms, they debate whether the forms we subscribe to are the best and right ones, or if there are better forms. People who have submitted to a liberal arts mentor are not only talking about the forms that Jefferson and Hamilton debated, that Marx and Hegel promoted, that Caesar and Cicero debated, and that Hume illuminated, they are talking about the forms of today. Which are effective? Which are immoral? Which bring happiness? Which jeopardize security? Which promote families? And which will enhance or disable our freedoms? Simply put, forms are systems. There are hard systems and soft systems. In the E-Myth, Michael Gerber explains the importance of creating systems and how the success of businesses hinges on the creation and application of the systems involved. Just as the success of a business hinges upon well-thought-out systems, so does personal success, family happiness, cultural progress, community relationships, national direction, and government leadership. In other words, life success. Systems and forms create order out of chaos. <clears throat> I'm going to say that again. Systems and forms create order out of chaos or out of raw material. Hard systems have to do with physical objects and are a certain way of doing something. For instance, putting in a well and piping the water to your house would be a physical system or a hard system. It's a way to get the water into your house. You could do it by carrying it with buckets. On the other hand, determining what time you wake up each day is a soft system. There is nothing to physically grasp onto, but a choice has been made. And having a routine and a way, a predetermined course of action creates order. Of course, there are often physical systems tied in with abstract and mental systems. Once you've decided that you're waking up every morning at 6, you will usually set a physical alarm to wake you. Whether hard or soft, forms give order and structure. They make up the very fabric of our lives. 
liberal arts mentors teach their students to think in terms of forms and to see their life's missions in terms of forms. A liberal arts mentor guides you to study forms. You get to see results of specific forms. You compare, contrast, weigh, measure, and balance. You cry over countless lives lost because of poor forms. You rejoice over happy families and societies allowed by wise forms. You begin to compare today's forms. And after you've gained a breadth of understanding, including forms of economics, business, philosophy, government, community, national, private, and public forms, you realize that you personally have a strong interest in forms and in certain forms, and you study those deeply. You will go so deep in your studies that you become an expert. You know the forms in your chosen area so well that soon you know when one form is better than another, and there's your mission, promoting, teaching, exhorting, and helping to change society to grasp a better form, one that leads to more happiness or more security or freedom, philanthropy or beauty. I want to pause right there. And, um, in Blackfoot, I'm one of the five pillars tutorial teachers. And, of course, we're beginning to traverse through the classics that are on the George with Five Pillars certification list. And we began to talk about forms the other day. We have a few of the books under our belt. And, of course, the people in our class are reading other classics besides these ones. And one of them asked and said, do we really, because I helped them draw their educational iris and um, start filling in books in the different categories to know how many re- have you read in economics, how many, in, you know, how much thought do you have on business, how much this, how much that. And they said, do we really need to read 50 to 100 books in every discipline? And it's really funny because they started to list the books that they'd read and they realized, oh, my gosh, that one book was one of my books in economics. You know, they they took The Chosen or The Lonesome Gods or Jane Eyre and some of these other classics, and they realized that sometimes one classic begins to discuss 15 or 20 different areas. Do you find that, Tatiana? Yeah. <laughs> and I told them, I said, look, you get one or 200 basic classics under your belt, and you may have been exposed to 50 classics in all these areas already. Just because oftentimes, especially this literature classic, it doesn't cover just one area of form. It covers several. And that was really fun for them to begin to see that. Okay, three reasons for studying forms. First of all, they bring order and structure to our life. If we don't like the results we are getting, we can change them by changing the way we do things. The way we do things impacts our society, our happiness, our legacy, our prosperity, our security, our freedom. When the early American founders saw their freedoms, their security, their prosperity, and their happiness coming under increasing attack, they knew something had to change. Jefferson penned it this way in the Declaration of Independence. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. 
laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. He gives us a hint here. He tells us right here what is the foundation for a form. I'm going to say it again. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form. So he gives us a hint about forms that they're built on principles and organizing its powers in a certain way. I'm going to go on. The very form of England's government was destructive to the colonies. It was only knowing other forms and ways of governing that gave hope to the founding generation. The founders didn't like what they saw happening. Fortunately, they knew other forms, other ways of doing things. Ronald Reagan said, Quote, the challenge of statesmanship is to have the vision to dream of a better, safer world and the courage, persistence, and patience to turn the dream into reality. End of quote. When Reagan started out, even before his governorship in California, he understood that bureaucracy had become its own master. He'd seen firsthand of the youth, the negative impact of FDR's government deals in his hometown. He had taken careful note that after the crisis of the Great Depression, the government programs, the soup lines, the cleanup committees, the work committees were no longer needed. But an interesting thing happened. The government made the goal, feeding and helping the hungry, the jobless, and the homeless, its secondary objective. Number one was its own organizational survival. It was like Frankenstein gone bad. Reagan said, A bureaucracy's number one job is to protect itself. Here his dream began, to help change bureaucracy. Bureaucracy in America was just too big, too wasteful, too unnecessary. Reagan called for a change of form. Reagan understood mission too. He said, A leader, once convinced that a particular course of action is the right one, must have the determination to stick with it and be undaunted when the going gets rough. The question is, which forms or dreams and particular course of action do you and do I, does Tatiana, does each of us, support relentlessly and subconsciously? Okay, second reason for studying forms. Being able to see and compare forms enables us to name the problem. Many people seem to be great problem solvers, but not as many people can discern what the real problem is. Many people have to wait for someone else to define it. The funny thing is, most problems can be broken down into ineffective or bad forms. It is a simple matter of being able to see them. For example, billions of dollars are spent each year in America on education because everyone can see that there is a problem with American education. The stats are in and they are low. Not very many people can see what the real problem is, so most, most of the money goes to the wrong place. It goes to programs and software, not to the underlying form of education. Instead of looking at the three systems of education and realizing that only the elite schools even try to train leaders, those who don't, Think and forms just keep increasing taxes, 
and throwing money at the latest reform plans. As long as rote job training is the goal and form of schools, they'll continue to produce mediocre learning. When we can see in forms, then we can see where the root problem lies. There are some skills that help us to be able to see in forms. Now, some of this is taking in some of the information that we give to you in other places, but I want to insert this here. Here are some of the skills. I'm going to tell you about three of them. One of them is pattern recognition. To be able to see in terms of patterns, I know that our interleaver math class really, really focuses on pattern recognition. In fact, each week when the students come to class, they get to share a pattern that they've seen. And I know that when we taught the class last year, we spent 20 minutes giving students the opportunity to share any patterns that they saw. And I'll tell you what totally blew me away, because here we are in a math and science class, and one of the students was in the TGYC class, and he was reading some of the TGYC assignments. And he got up one day and he said, I have noticed a pattern in... And he got up on the board and he drew the diagram of the pendulum swing of between going from anarchy to they would swing over and a dictator would rise. And it would go back and forth and back and forth unless they broke out of the cycle and landed somewhere in the middle. And he had seen this pattern. And he says, I've seen this pattern and this is crazy. (laughs) Here he is talking about this in our math class. And we had people noticing behavioral patterns to actual measurement and scientific patterns to patterns in in all kinds of fields. And it was the funnest math class I've ever been in (laughs) as our students trained their mind to see connections and to see patterns and to be able to think, if this, then this. I think that's part of our biggest jobs as parents with our little, little ones before they're, you know, in core phase. I think that's one of the things we teach our little core phasers is to see if this, then this. You know, if I hit my sister, then it makes us both sad. (laughs) Or if I, you know, don't clean my dish, then my dish is dirty at lunch. That's what we're training to see in core phase is if this, then this. And, you know, the the two- and three-year-olds don't often see it. I know that I've got a little niece. The other day, my daughter was babysitting her, and my daughter stopped. My other daughter stopped real quick, and she bumped into her. Uh, my niece bumped into my daughter, and my niece got mad and, and hit her. And so the babysitter daughter said, you know, you can't hit. I'm going to put you on timeout for five minutes. And my niece said, you're going to put me on timeout? I didn't hit you. <laughs> Why? I didn't hit you. And she's so young, she couldn't see the connection between her hitting the other child and going on time out. And it's very true that small children, the reason why we have to be consistent is because we teach them to make the connections. I remember that my son was the same way. I remember when he was three years old, he was running down the hall, and he was in his little sleeper pajamas, and he tripped, he fell, he bonked his head into the wall, and I was like 20 feet away from him. He came up crying, and... He looked at me and he said, you did that to me. And it was because I was looking at him. You know, he thought I was the one who made him fall. He couldn't see the connection. Sometimes 
children are, sometimes we don't even have to look at adults to learn human behavior. We just have to look at children. Adults are like this. Sometimes they don't see the results and the linking causes. They cannot connect the two. We can take almost any issue or anything that's being discussed on the news right now and see if people, adults, are actually having a lot of disconnect. And not... Yeah, Tatiana? I was just going to say that the, the reason why Dr. Mill and a lot of people support Georgics at George West is because Georgics believe in everything in its time and in its season, and and because they're tied to the land, they can see the direct results of every action, because nature cannot be inconsistent like man can. And so they understand that principle of, I do this, this happens, I do that, this happens. But we've lost that in today's society since we've gone from the agrarian into the industrial, where the effects may often not even be seen or felt for two generations, two, three generations. And therefore, we've lost our really ability to really have a powerful effect with forms. That's right. I'm so glad that you brought that up. It's very, very, very true that sometimes to make the connection is two generations later and that what had trained the agrarian society to see it was being tied to the land. Anything that has to do with nature, animals, the land, it is so very, very true. And it's something to think about with your core phase children that that's what we're training them over and over to see is connections that this is connected with this over here and this is connected with this over here. And then, of course, we support it as as they go into level of learning and as they go into scholar phase and as they develop to be able to help them to make those connections. Tatiana, I'm glad that you brought that up. And this is just dumb, but that also helps us to know if we are literally doing Thomas Jefferson education. In my opinion, we cannot do it without gardens. We can't. We cannot do it without being tied to the land in some way, either to animals or to gardens or to whatever. And if if we want to train our own minds to see it, if we want our families to see it, we have to go back to the land. And even Jefferson said that our very freedoms depend on it, being tied to the land. And now we can even see why, even in how it can help us see forms. Okay. So one of the skills needed to be able to see and compare forms is pattern recognition. I'm not going to go into a lot more detail that way, but it's the ability to see connections. And if you need to grow your ability to do that, then then get the Inseligo Math book that I wrote. I go into detail on it in there in ways that you can develop that ability. Okay, a second skill that is needed is the ability to judge. Liberal arts mentors teach the ability to judge, to compare one form to another. I'm going to give an example here in just a minute, but I want to intersect Tatiana with this for a second. Tatiana, you are in Dr. DeMille's class this year, right? Mm -hmm. Have you, this is sort of an intuitive question that will take some intuitive divining for you, but what ways have you noticed that Dr. DeMille judges things that you are learning? As an individual? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he is a person, as your liberal arts mentor, he is a way that he uses. He may not tell you he does it, but you can still see it if you open your eyes to it. What have you noticed? 
how he judges what I'm learning personally. Nope. How he judges what judges what how I'm he judges form. How he judges form. Oh. Yep. I know he uses the five out of forms and he asks all those questions. But intuitively how he does it? Yeah. I don't know, maybe he looks behind the, the spirit of the forms or how does he judge it? When he questions you in class, what kind of questions does he ask you? Questions that uh, are like, I don't know, really, really deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to just state this again because I want each of you to think about your liberal arts mentor. And I want you to think in terms of you being the mentor to your students because I'm going to state this again. Liberal arts mentors teach the ability to judge, to compare one form to another. So I'm going to give you an example. Now, when Tatiana says really deep, it's true. She she might not be able to explain it in less than 15 minutes. If you know, she'll she'll be thinking about this question all day now, and she'll start noticing how he does it. And that's why I asked honestly, is because I wanted to make you ask the question, because it will make you be um, better yourself. Uh, I'm going to share a, a, an experience that C.S. Lewis gives about how his first liberal arts mentor helped him. Now, I I have what is the word extrapolated? I don't know what the word is. As I have studied C.S. Lewis, I found that he personally used four ways to compare forms. And I've pulled these out. And he didn't he didn't come along and say, okay, I use four ways to compare forms. That's not what he said. But as I read his books, I began to see exactly, because I asked that question, Todd. I said, what does C.S. Lewis use to compare forms? And so that's what I'm asking you about Dr. DeMille. I want you to find what Dr. DeMille uses because he does it. And if you can nail it, you will be able to master those ways, okay? So I'm going to tell you the four that I've noticed that C.S. Lewis uses. He uses reason. He uses reason. And maybe all of Dr. DeMille fits in these four, or maybe there's going to be something else that we can add or that we can take in these and actually study them on a deeper level. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Second thing that C.S. Lewis uses is historical evidence. Third thing is his personal experience. And the fourth thing is revelation. Now, listen to his experience with his professor and see what he learned from his professor. Of those four things, reason, historical evidence, personal experience, and revelation, what did he begin to learn from his own personal liberal arts mentor? He was, I think he was maybe 15 when he had this experience. Here, I'm just going to quote. This is from his book, I think, and there was joy. I think that this is book. It's his memoirs on his education. His professor is Professor Kirk. You are now, said Kirk, proceeding along the principal artery between Great and Little Bookham. I think he's referring to the road that they're walking along. I stole a glance at him. I began to make conversation in the deplorable manner that I had acquired. I said I was surprised at the scenery of Surrey. It was much wilder than I had expected. Stop, shouted Kirk with a suddenness that made me jump. What do you mean by wildness? 
and what grounds had you for not expecting it? I replied I didn't know what, still making conversation. As answer after answer was torn to shreds, it at last dawned upon me that he really wanted to know. He was not making conversation, nor joking, nor snubbing me. He wanted to know. I was stung into attempting a real answer. A few passes sufficed to show that I had no clear and distinct idea corresponding to the world word wildness, and that, insofar as I had any idea at all, wildness was a singularly inept word. Do you not see, then, concluded the great knock, that's what he called him, that your remark was meaningless? I prepared to sulk a little, assuming that the subject would now be dropped. Never was I more mistaken in my life. Having analyzed my terms, Kirk was proceeding to deal with my proposition as a whole. On what had I based, but he pronounced it biased, my expectations about the flora and geology of Surrey? Was it maps, or photographs, or books? I could produce none. It had, heaven help me, never occurred to me that what I called my thoughts needed to be biased on anything. Kirk once more drew a conclusion without the slightest sign of emotion, but equally without the slightest concession to what I thought good manners. Do you now see, then, that you had no right to have any opinion whatever on the subject? By this time, our acquaintance had lasted three and a half minutes. But the tone set by this first conversation was preserved without a single break during all the years I spent at Bookham. The idea that human beings should exercise their vocal organs for any purpose except that of communicating or discovering truth, was to him preposterous. The most casual remark was taken as a summons to disputation. I soon came to know the differing values of his three openings. The loud cry of stop was flung in to arrest a torrent of verbiage which could not be endured a moment longer, not because it fretted his patience, he never thought of that, but because it was waiting, time darkening counsel. The hastier and quieter excuse ushered in a correction or distinction, merely parenthetical and betokened that, thus set right, your remark might still, without absurdity, be allowed to reach completion. The most encouraging of all was, I hear you. This meant that your remark was significant and only required refutation. It had risen to the dignity of error. Refutation, when we got so far, always followed the same lines. Had I read this? Had I studied that? Had I any statistical evidence? Had I any evidence in my own experience? And so, to the almost inevitable conclusion, do you not see, then, that you had no right? <laughs> Some boys would not have liked it, but to me it was red beef and strong beer. Okay. <laughs> so, Tatiana, the question that I asked you about what way is Dr. DeMille forcing you to think. Hopefully it plagues you and you have to analyze it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on here. Through this type of mentoring, C. S. Lewis began to discipline his mind. He learned how to think. He found that of course there was uh, one area that he enjoyed comparing and contrasting more than any other one form and you can read his and find out what it is that he spent his life promoting. The challenge of statesmanship is to dream of a better, safer world and to follow that course and to support that 
that action. I'm going to just give you a couple more examples here before I ask Tatiana some questions before she has to leave. Abraham Lincoln also studied relentlessly his whole life, disciplining his mind to compare one form to another. He could think so clearly by the time Douglas came along that he didn't get caught up in the wrong argument. You know, that is what sophists do. Sophists will argue and argue and argue the wrong argument. If they can just lead your minds and your eyes and your hearts to look at the wrong place, they've won. That's all it takes. That is all that it takes. It wasn't only about states' rights he was arguing. It was about right and wrong. It wasn't a government and national form he was arguing. To him, the argument was cultural. It was about values and morals, which manifested themselves nationally and in government. He, too, spent his life supporting the forms he believed would bring happiness, justice, and security in the country's longevity. He believed in America. He believed in a united America. Washington was well-read and had a myriad of experiences to draw upon so that when his beloved army and nation offered him kingship and emperorship, what did he do? He wept, not for joy, but for sorrow. How could his beloved generals and soldiers not know what they were asking? The very tyranny he had spent years, lives, and monies castrating was now offered to him. How deeply they needed to understand the consequences of the very form they were now promoting. Of course, he declined and led our nation to create perhaps the greatest nation in history. Okay. I'm going to lay kind of a map. There are several forms. I'm going to just give you some basic five categories of forms, and then I'm going to ask Tatiana some questions. There are... I'm going to name these kind of quickly. Government forms. Some subcategories of... Now, government forms can affect our security. I'll just name some things that can help you understand some government forms. Um, Separation of powers, foundations, the constitution, the legislative, the interactions, the levels, the delegation of powers, the executive, the direct limitations. Now, if you've auxiliary precautions, if if you've gone into studying government on a higher level, all of these words will actually make sense to you. Another category is national forms. The definition of nation is a group of people with shared heritage and a shared vision for the future. National forms. The next one is cultural forms. A group of people with a shared core belief. Some subcategories of cultural is religion, education, mores, communication, arts, entertainment, family, manners, values, morals. These are cultural forms. The next one is community forms. Definition for this category, non-force, non-profit, voluntary institutions or actions designed to better society. These are political forms. These are philanthropic forms. These are humanitarian forms. You know, in some countries, it's illegal to be philanthropic. It's illegal to, to give to, you know, humanitarian things. Then the next one is private forms. 
property ownership, economic, and business are some subcategories to this. Okay. Now, Tatiana, can you share with us some of the forms that you've studied this semester at Georgia College? Well, I think most of the forms would be in the family, so it would be in the culture form, in the culture category, and studying political economy. We studied a lot about the family and a little bit about the economy, a lot less than I thought we would, um, economy as we know it, but we also studied like personal forms of self-improvement. We've studied governmental forms and also like how to implement governmental forms into cultural forms and making sure you write your governmental forms that are in coherence with cultural forms. Give me some examples of family forms. Name just two for me. Well, you have family forms that are executive in style or in nature, where there will be one parent who's predominantly more in charge than the other, and so they kind of take control. Or you have family forms where they're more legislative in nature, where they interact with each other and make decisions with each other, not not one predominantly, but each having their own role. Very good. And did he discuss where most American families lie, or did he say it was a big mix? Today, actually, people are in judiciary where they don't have a executive and they don't have a legislative. They have a judicial where it's just kind of like arbitrary, and the only time that, we, that there's no arm, there are no rules or set boundaries, just whenever people go astray, they're, they're disciplined. We're interrupting this broadcast to invite you to ask questions or share your epiphanies in the comment section. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a good review on the platform you are using, because that really helps others find our content. Also, check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. That makes sense. What about, you said that you also looked at a little bit into some personal, what did you call it? You said personal forms. Yeah, we studied time management forms. We studied, let's see, going back to my whole semester. We studied time management forms. We studied form, personal forms of leadership. We studied... Personal, Tell me some personal forms of leadership. Mostly we studied that through simulation, which I think all of us completely failed at. <laughs> <But> <laughs> They gave us a simulation, and it happened to be, like, right when we were supposed to be reading Les Mis, and we're also right when we're supposed to be preparing for finals, and so, like any other George College simulation, we were not prepared, ready. And so, it was interesting, because we, we had the scenario, and we were all getting ready for the scenario, and we got up there, it, we were trying to help trying to implement a leadership school. And so, when we got up there, we gave our presentation, asked us a couple questions, and then, it started firing at us whether we had implemented the skills of leadership in our methods of coming up with these answers. And basically, were you supporting the Thomas Jefferson education? Were you being a leadership education? Were you actually leading or were this just happened to come about because of default? And so we study a lot, like, the importance of, of leading with freedom wow. and, and stuff like that. Wow. That's great. And then what time management forms did you compare? Well, we studied the eight, oh gosh, what are they, eight old technologies and eight new technologies. Okay. And 
we really like studied make a difference, don't succeed, and then because we want and waste time, not balance. And because right. we studied that, we, you know, basically, how do you waste your time effectively? Right. Our our teachers, some may have heard Dr. DeMille teach those, but some may not be familiar with that. That would be a really fun lecture for them to have sometime. Oh, yeah. Good. Keep telling me some other categories of forms that you've been exposed to this semester. We have, a, we studied a lot of business forms because we've been studying political economy. Okay, um, tell me a couple business forms. Free market business forms versus capital business forms. Studying what, like, how free market business forms work in an economy. This one is deep. In fact, I'm glad that, that you mentioned this. I know that you have to run in a minute because you've got a commitment at nine. Do you have anything that you want to, to add or say about forms? I think that the most important thing that we realize is that forms are in, internal as well as external. And as, as a person, we have various forms of implementing principles and and existing, or, or I should say, our, our, our way ethics of dealing with problems has a lot to do with our forms that we have in our own lives. And unless we look to forms, we'll never be able to solve our own personal problems um, and never be able to name our problems. And so when, we, when we're thinking, oh, I'm having this really hard problem loving this person or I'm having a really hard time getting my schoolwork done or, or whatever it is, we need to look back at our personal forms and, and like you said, go through the steps, compare, and, you know, notice patterns, and then judge. And, and, and once you begin to do that, we'll begin to, to find out the ways that we can help ourselves protect ourselves. Like, oftentimes we're like, I need to wake up more, you know, in the morning. And so we, we set our alarm clock on and we go for a week and we, we're really good about getting up at seven or, or, or six or whatever. But after the week's out, we're just, we never do it again. And then we, even worse than we were before, because we really didn't change our form. We just, went wild in a tactic. We have to change like, the principle of our form in order for us to change ourselves, really. Very good. Thank you, Tatiana. I appreciate you getting, getting on with us. I'm going to do an exercise right now that I want to... <laughs> it's it's not fun. If I know that I went and taught a seminar in San Diego in September, and I gave them two documents now. You know, in the eight-hour seminar... They had two hours of exams, and sometimes that's just not fun, but <laughs> I I can't help it because it really pushes us to this, the next level. And so I've taken one of my uh, national speech that was printed and published to over a million readers every month get this magazine article called Imprimus. And this was, the speech was given, and it's by Steve Forbes. And it's on, it's perfect because it, Tatiana will probably be sad she has to leave because she'd probably really enjoy hearing some of this, but it's on the great and continuing economic debate of the 20th century. Something that I want to challenge all of us to be able to do is to immediately pick out the form that the classic we're reading is talking about, or the forms, because sometimes it's more than one. Oftentimes it's more than one. And so I just want to start reading this and analyze this with with you so that you can see, oh my gosh, yeah, that's totally, he's discussing a form. And and we can train our minds to, to see like this. Okay, here's his first sentence. 
the great economic debate of the 20th century was between collectivists and free marketers. Okay, I'm just going to read that again. The great economic debate of the 20th century was between collectivists and free marketers. All right, that tells us something right there. Let's see. Sean Crane, see if you can press 6 and unmute yourself. Yes, I'm on, Tiffany. Okay, good. Stay on here with me, Kay. Okay. Here he says, the great economic debate of 20th century was between collectivists and free marketers. What two forms has he already introduced to us? Can I read it one more time? The great economic debate of the 20th century was between collectivists and free marketers. Well, certainly government. Mm-hmm. He's introducing two economic forms. Are you talking about the specifics of the one you said or on your forms? I'm not understanding the question. Just that Steve Forbes is going to talk about some economic forms in this article that I'm going to begin reading. Right. And he just named two economic forms. Right. Collectivists and free marketing. Okay. Very good. So at the top of your page, you can write both of those down. In one sense, he says, the free marketers won. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, it was widely acknowledged that Soviet socialism, so there's a form, Soviet socialism, which he's going to put under collectivism, had been a catastrophic, not to say murderous, failure. Okay, he's given us some words that describe now Soviet socialism under the category of collectivism. Catastrophic, murderous. So under there we can we can draw a line and we can put catastrophic. We can put murderous. Let's just think for just a moment about Soviet socialism. I went to Hungary and, and viewed firsthand the the results, the impact. I'm gonna give what I'm gonna give you now are some key ways to judge a form. The first thing that you do is look at the impact. You say, what are the results? What's the impact of this form? Soviet socialism behind the, the iron wall, behind the iron curtain, what is the, what was the impact? Number one, they, if, <laughs> they would have fallen so much sooner if America hadn't sent food. They were so bad off economically that their people were starving absolutely starving. And when all of your little minions, all of your little workers, all of your little slaves are starving, what happens? Can they keep working? They can't. They're, they're the structure of collectivism, of the Soviet socialism, the communism that they had, was literally starving the people. And they only continued to flourish, and, you know, they dwindled slower because America sent wheat. We sent wheat to Russia. We fed them. <laughs> so they lasted longer until they finally crashed in 1989. And they, when I walked through the ruins of the Soviet socialist Hungary and saw other devastating effects of this form, this economic form, it was, it was shocking. Families began not to trust each other. I'm just going to list some of the things that I saw, okay, because I want you to begin to train your eyes to see impact, to see results. We would walk along the streets, and houses had 
fences built up between the houses that completely separated them from their very, very close neighbor. They had fences because they had to have privacy because nobody could trust each other. Students in the classroom were taught to turn in their parents if their parents had pencils and something to write with if, so that they could communicate to other people. They had to hide, you know, writing utensils if they had any weapons, if their parents ever talked about God. Parents were not free to teach their children anything that they believed in anymore or the students were taught to turn their parents in. Neighbors couldn't trust neighbors. I just saw the physical evidence of this just by seeing how high their gates were and their fences to separate them from each other. And then I saw the the huge buildings in town because they were forced off of their private farms to come work in the factories and in the mines and they just lived in these big huge it's like big huge condominiums you know with two or three bedrooms in a house that was their whole house just a teeny little kitchen I stayed in one of them she had two bedrooms a living room a teeny little bathroom like two feet by four feet and a little teeny kitchen, maybe three feet by eight feet. And that's where families lived instead of on their farms. They just lived in these great big, huge, tall condominiums, nine floors high. Anyway, I just, I saw effects of, of what Steve Forbes is talking about right here. The catastrophic, not to say murderous failure. I haven't even told you about the murders. They took the leaders, church leaders, business leaders, education leaders, any leaders, the first thing that, that Russia did, that the Soviet did, to be able to push this form, they took anybody who could think, and they had held illegal trials for them, and they shipped them off to Siberia. Then the, the country was basically left leaderless, and they ruled with terror. That's what they did. And anyone who, who stood up, they just were tortured and murdered. And people who didn't stand up but just were accused of standing up to them were tortured and murdered. And we got to go into the museums and see the evidence of all of this. Okay, so so here he says, you know, on one sense it seems like the free marketers won when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. It was widely acknowledged that Soviet socialism had been a catastrophic, not to say murderous failure. But in another sense, the debate continues. You have to understand something here. Forbes can see, and he's talking in forms. That's what he's doing with us right now. He's got us trenched deep into forms, and he's only said three sentences, okay? Democratic capitalism. All right, here's another form. Democratic capitalism. Over here on free markets. Democratic capitalism. Still has not vanquished the idea of collectivism Far from it. At the beginning of the last century, free markets seemed to be on the ascendancy everywhere. But two great events gave collectivism its lease on life. Okay. He's saying something here about this form. Number one, he's saying that we're following collectivism, that it has a lease on life. And he's going to tell us two events that made it so. He is going to draw some connections with us. And this is fascinating. Sean, do you remember being in school studying the Great Depression? Yes. And do you remember that studying that the world criticized the free market and said that that's why that happened? Yes. 
that basically America was a failure and, and the free market was a failure. He, he analyzes it completely different. And I read this and I was like, man, what did I waste my time in school for? Why couldn't I have read things like this, you know? Okay, here we go. So he says two events helped collectivism grow, okay? The first was World War I. In addition to the slaughter and to breeding the ideologies of communism, state fascism, Nazism, and even the Islamic fascism we are battling today, World War I served as an intoxicating drug to those in the West who believed that a hand... Here we go. This is what he said happened. World War I taught a belief, okay? And then I want you to analyze your belief and see if you believe this or see if you have any friends who believe this. This is huge because when we study forms, we have to begin to see the behind-the-scene beliefs. That will help us nail the form. Here is the behind-the-scene belief of socialism and collectivism. You ready? He's going to name it right here for us. And he said that World War I, it was like a drug. This belief just spread like an intoxicating drug, okay? That a handful of people in government could manage affairs better than the messy way in which free people tend to do so. Isn't that shocking, Sean? Well, it goes back very much to uh, Hillary Clinton's book that we discussed last year. That, that That's what she believes. Right, that she's promoting that same form. Yeah, she believes that a that handful of people in government could manage affairs better than the messy way in which free people tend to do so. Free people like families, yeah. Yeah. Let me keep reading here. Massive increases in government powers, coupled with massive increases in taxation, gave many the idea that you can achieve massive increases in production by commandeering the financial resources of society. Now, this is what is so shocking, because that is exactly what Soviet socialism did, was that they they decided that they could run, they could have an increase in production by commandeering the financial resources of society, which includes the human body, okay, and it completely failed. Because they did it, they just took it all and did it all at once. And what we bought into now is just do it a little bit at a time. But it has the same result. <clears throat> it actually di- diminishes production. It, the, at least that's what my eyes tell me, what socialism does. But let's keep reading here. The second event that served as a boon to collectivism was the Great Depression, which was widely seen as a free market failure. When I read that, I thought, yeah, that's what they, that's what they taught me in school. <laughs> this view was false. Misguided government policies were at fault. Now, this is interesting. It makes me want to go study this next thing that he says to us. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff, for instance, which dried up the flow of capital. So apparently, in 1929, there were two people, Smoot and Hawley, <laughs> who pushed a tariff that dried up the flow of capital in and out of the country. Okay? If you track the stock market crash of 1929, it parallels the course of this tariff bill through Congress. When Smoot Holly arose in the fall of 1929, the markets fell. When it looked like the tariff bill was sidetracked in late 1929, the markets revived. The Dow Jones went up 50% from its lows in November. 
In the spring of 1930, it was signed into law, and the rest is history. There were other factors at work in the Great Depression, of course, such as President Hoover's gigantic tax increase in 1931. But despite the fact that these also involved bad policies, the lesson taken away by many was that economies will implode unless the government manages them. That is what was taught. Okay, John Maynard Keynes, the intellectual guiding light behind the New Deal economics, believed that an economy was like a machine. If you put doses of money into it or pull money out at the right times, he thought, you can achieve an equilibrium. This idea that government can drive an economy as if it were an automobile has had baleful consequences. Okay, what he's doing right now is like what any classic does that we read. It compares forms. It shows us the consequences to forms. It gives us the guiding structure of the form, and it shows us the the moral goal of the form and, and such like that. He goes on, he talks about is democratic capitalism good. He talks about collectivist myths. He talks about Keynes and, and the fact that we follow his, his plan. Anyway, <clears throat> I just wanted to read that for just a second to help you see that, that almost anything that we read, what it's doing is, is discussing forms. And now I have a challenge for you. Hope you have your pencils. I'm going to give you ten categories of forms. There, you know, you can trace them up to the five major categories that I told you before, but I'm going to give you ten specific categories. And this is what I want you to do with these over, over the next month. Okay? I'm going to give you these ten categories of forms. And this is what I want you to do with them. One, I want you to find at least two, maybe three examples. Like I did with Tatiana when she said she listed some family forms and she gave us three examples in family forms. She said legislative, judicial, executive. She actually had names for them and explained them just a little bit. Okay? And she compared them a bit. She began to explain personal leadership a little bit. She also told us some examples in just the, a couple other areas of forms that, that they had been studying in her class. Well, that's what I want you to do is over the next month, I don't want this to be a real academic exercise. I want it to be more of a feeling exercise that you do. I know that that's crazy and it doesn't seem possible for what I'm going to be asking, but I want this to be an intuitive exercise that you do and that you think about, okay? In these ten categories, I want you to try and see at least two forms, two ways to doing something, and I want you to list them. I want you to look at their impact. What, let's take one of the family forms that she brought up. She said that in America, by large, we are a judicial family form, which means that nothing is stated very clearly, but when the rule is broken, then the law comes down. Like I I knew a family that ran like this totally, and one of the daughters was 13. She took the car with the truck. She backed out of the driveway. She wanted to go to a friend's house. Her parents weren't home. She lived kind of on dirt roads. She thought, oh, I'll just take the truck. 
to my friend's house. Mom's not here to take me. So she backed out of their driveway, and she hid into the telephone pole. Okay? So that action right there all of a sudden showed the family form. Mom and Dad came down She with the law. She was grounded for three months. She couldn't get her driver's license now till she was 17, yada, yada, yada. And that was that. Well, if they had followed a different form, she would have clearly known not to take the car. Make sense? But they did. They followed that form, the judicial form, that when something is really bad, the law comes down. Like, Sal, you should have known better. Versus having family counseled every week versus being very clear about what's expected versus having a balance between executive, judicial, and legislative where some things are decided together, but some things is just the way that it's done, you know, stuff like that. Okay, so Tatiana shared with us that form. So I want you to, well, what I was saying there is what is the impact of this form that many Americans follow is that teenagers and adolescents are confused, and a lot of them are raising themselves, and mom and dad aren't in the picture and are not as involved in their life. That's one of the impacts. That's one of the consequences to this form. That's something that we see, and youth, something else that we're seeing from this form is that people aren't getting married. There's a trend that people are waiting longer and longer and longer to get married. They, the, the, Marriages that they saw weren't that strong anyway, and they can't see the reasons for getting married. People are waiting a a lot longer in order to have families. I mean, we could go on and on. We can list a whole bunch more impact to following this form without having strong families, just kind of having weak families. Okay, so that's one of the things that I want you to do is to list the impact of the two forms that you brainstorm in that category. On your paper, this is what I want it to look like when you do this. Because the second thing I want you to do is to diagram, not in paragraph form, but in arrows and in lists and bullets and brainstorm, the mechanism, the way. I want you to detail the form. The other day, my sister was taking her master's oral, and we were brainstorming her personal form of education. And she she put at the top of the page, she just diagrammed the whole thing on paper, her form of education, how she educated those around her and her children. And, and she's a teacher and what form she followed. All we did was analyze it. This is what you do, this is how it works, and then you do this, and it can go over here, over here, and this is what happened. And she diagrammed the whole thing on paper. Sometimes you might need a partner to help you brainstorm and say, what is it that I do? <laughs> or sometimes you can work in teams to do this, and it, it, it helps. So diagram the two ways that you see. Then here's the next part. I want you to tell the one you support by your actions. Hopefully, at least one of the forms that you're writing about is the one that you support, that your actions support it. Figure out if you want to continue supporting it (laughs) or if you want to change, if you don't like the results, if you want different results. Here's the list. 
of the ten areas that I would like you to start thinking in. The first one is family. And figure out how does your family do things. How do you make decisions in your family? You know, I'm really excited to take this challenge and to get together with my husband and to say, how do we really do this? How do we make decisions in our home? What is the power structure in our home? Which form are we following and are we happy with it? Second one is community, our community form. Now, remember, under community, this could be political form. It can include philanthropic. How do you do your your philanthropy? Do you give to philanthropy? (laughs) Do you give to charity? How do you do it? Uh, This can include humanitarian forms, just just to give you some hints about community forms, okay? Any of you who are involved in a Commonwealth school or teaching a LEMI class, that falls under community as well as educational. You can look at the service that you give and what form do you follow. Remember, this is non-force, non-profit, voluntary institutions or actions designed to better society. Where was it that that I was, oh, I want to read this because, let's see if I can find this. is really, really interesting. He was, in, in this article, he was talking about a man named DeSoto. He says, the second essential principle is property rights. We take it for granted in this country that if you buy a piece of property, everyone acknowledges that you own it. He's going to talk about a different form here. So in America, you can own your property, all right? Most countries don't have that kind of uniform property system or form. A few years ago, Hernando de Soto, a great economist from Peru, saw that in countries like his, although there is entrepreneurial activity, there isn't the corresponding property or prosperity found in the U.S., and he wondered why. In his book, he says one of the key factors is the absence in so many other countries of a legal foundation for property rights. In Brazil's shanty towns, an individual may know that he owns the house in which he lives, and his neighbors may know it, but the fact is not recognized elsewhere. Mr. DeSoto was asked by the Egyptian government a few years ago to determine who owns the businesses and residences in Egypt. His finding was that 88% of the businesses in Egypt are illegal. 88%. Why is that? Here in the U.S., it is possible to set up a business legally in a matter of days. In Egypt, it takes a couple of years. It requires going through numerous bureaucracies, doling out numerous bribes, etc., so that it makes sense to proceed informally. On the other hand, running a business outside the law limits its growth. Most informal enterprises never grow beyond the level of family enterprises because if they get too big, they might attract the attention of the tax collector. DeSoto's group also reported that 92% of Egyptian housing is illegal. People living in residences may have deeds, but only a few miles away, those deeds are not recognized. In Egypt, as in so many other places, there is no uniform system of establishing and protecting property rights. Okay, so this this is what I want you to start thinking in terms of 
is that that's a societal you could say that that's a, a private form property ownership it's an economic form it's a business form okay so we've got family form community form religious form that's the third one the next one is government form the next one is societal The next is educational. The next is business. You know, in, it's been really interesting because we just voted in Idaho <clears throat> whether or not we're going to put more words to the federal change that for economic growth, the, the, Government can come in and seize your property. Like I was listening on the radio a few months ago that in Arizona, I think it was in Phoenix, there was a church that, that was on the corner of this very, very nice area. That they were going to seize that property and give it to Home Depot because then the state could collect a lot more taxes and it was for economic growth that they could seize that. Well, there's been legislation passed at the federal level that this can now happen, and it's now happening all over the place that even, like, our property form, our property rights protection is changing drastically, where for economic growth, they can seize your property. And anyway, in Idaho, we just had to vote on how we're going to define that and stuff like that. And we see this happening, the change in form, it it can happen so quickly and so dramatically. I was just thinking about that example. Okay, business and media, different forms of media. And, you know, your personal mission might lie in one of these areas, artistic or in two or three and, and crossover, artistic forms and then scientific forms. I was just speaking to my friend who who's a scientist, and she, she was just, she was just furious. <laughs> she she said that they have passed a law at the federal level that is going to impact science in a dramatic way, stating that judges get to determine which scientific data counts for evidence. And she says this has a huge impact, and the scientific community is in an absolute uproar because judges aren't necessarily even scientists, and they're going to have the right to determine what counts as evidence, and it will impact what sciences get funding, what sciences will grow. She says this is horrible. She says the impact of this law is going to hurt our nation and our freedoms incredibly. And this just has happened in the last, I don't know, six months or a year. She was showing the, me the scientific magazine on it. And, okay, so forms in scientific forms. I just want you to pick a few of these areas and try and see forms in these areas and compare them. But for you to see the impact, actually diagram the form and figure out which one you're supporting. Tiffany? Yes. Could I get you to repeat those ten forms? I got lost in the commentary. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> you betcha. Family, community, religious, 
government, societal, educational, business, media, artistic, and scientific. I want you to try and start seeing things in those forms, and I'm going to end on a on a Christmas note. I picked up Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol last night, and I thought, okay, I'm going to challenge them to start seeing forms in every classic they pick up. So let's see what Charles Dickens is sharing with us. And I found the two forms that he is comparing. Now, there are other forms he's comparing, but I'm going to just talk about two of the forms he's comparing. One of them is on page two, and he's describing Scrooge. I love this. The kids and I were repeating this last night, trying to memorize it. Okay, This is one of the forms. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Let's read that to you again. He's talking about forms of the heart. He's talking about forms of philanthropy, forms of... I don't know exactly what category to put this in, but it's forms of human motivation. Okay? So let me read it again. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. That kind of describes one way to live. Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint. Cold within him froze his old features. A frosty rime was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He iced his office, and it didn't thaw. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain, the snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Okay, so here we have one state of the heart. Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. <clears throat> and Charles Dickens then has the other form to compare it to. Here it is on page 14. This is, this is his old buddy, Marley, and he's talking about his business. He says, Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunities misused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. And Scrooge says, But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Okay, so he's like, Oh, I, I don't get it. You were always a good man of business. Business? cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Okay. So th those are the two forms. In A Christmas Carol, let me read that again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. 
also see <laughs> which form your family is is following. Listen to your children. Rick and I talk about this all the time. If we want to know where we stand, all we have to do is listen to our children, and then we know what we've been. Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, or covetous old sinner, or charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence. The difference between the two states of your heart. Okay. Very good. Thank you for joining us today. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.